You're listening to the podcast of Gary Meacham. If you'd like to learn more about Gary's various ministries, books, or want to have her at your next event, visit her website at GaryMeacham.com. It's amazing. We're going to have a great night. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming out. Um, And Allie had mentioned that next week is our last week. So next week, I know, gosh, it's weird how fast six weeks goes, you know? But next week is on revival. And I don't know the message yet, but I know the Lord has something for us. I know it's on revival. And... um, You know, I I was thinking, this much I do know, I'm going to be teaching on the upper room. And, or at least part of the message is me on the upper room. Did you know that the upper room was 120 people? We've been averaging about 170, 150 to 170 here. So we're talking about 120 people that had an experience with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and changed the world. So, you know, I've I've gone back to this question for the Lord many times um, since he told me to to do the deep. Like, I've said it to you before, what what are we? What is this? You know, it's not really like, you know, in a big church building and, 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 you know, what, what is this supposed to be? You know what? It's supposed to be exactly what it's been exactly what it's been, a gathering of people that get in their car and drive to a hotel on cold nights <laughs> and stand in a parking garage when the enemy turns the fire alarm on. Okay, come on. But for those of you who weren't here, that happened two weeks ago. But um, I, I want to tell you real quickly before we dive into this um, lesson tonight, which I'm real excited about, um, many of you were here last week. How many people were here last week on, wow, a lot of people were here last week. Okay, so last week was on the enemy. Okay, how many people had a bad week after that lesson? Did anybody? I, a couple people, really, where they were like, honestly, it was a nightmare of a week, right? Well, okay, I have to tell you that you so brilliantly and beautifully prayed for me. Many of you stayed after last week and I was telling you my fears because they had found something on my spine and so I I was told that I had to you know um, see an oncologist I told you the whole story and so Monday you prayed Monday night we met you prayed Tuesday I went for the PET scan and if you've had them before many of you I'm sure have they shoot you up with that radioactive stuff and you sit very still and then you go through it and I was just praising the Lord, thinking about all of you, and, you know, just, like, just whatever. And, and I had to, though, get dressed and go to a very big speaking event right after that. So my mind was a little bit, eh, 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 you know, um, and, and I looked like death. I mean, I had my hair up in a ponytail. I looked terrible. Those poor ladies had to look at me that night. But, but the next morning... Bobby and I got up early. We went to the oncologist first thing, and he walked in the room, and he said, I have great news. It's not cancer. So, uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And I would be standing here praising him no matter what the outcome would have been, and you guys know that because you know me. Amen. Amen. 
Um, but uh, the, the most meaningful moment was with my brother. You know, I told you about my little brother who has multiple myeloma, and that's why they were so, so nervous. So when Bobby and I left the oncologist, we went into the parking lot, and we were bawling. And I was bawling because I was looking at all the people that were so sick, you know, in the room, the waiting room. And I was bawling because... I got good news, but my brother got the news that his blood spiked back up. He's been in remission for a year after a full bone marrow transplant. But you know what? He was the most joyous, happy person when I told him. He hadn't slept the night before, and, and, and he's so amazing. <clears throat> he said, Gare, for whatever reason, cancer's been in my life for 15 years. And I'm overcoming this just like I overcame lymphoma. And, you know, he just was so brilliant and so wonderful. Um, he's an amazing man. So anyway, it's just been a really great week of closure for that. So thank you so, so much. I wanted to let you know. I know a lot of people were like, yeah. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. Okay, so tonight um, we're going to be talking about purpose and calling. And when I knew that that was a topic the Lord wanted us to touch on. I thought back, some of you I know um, were with me um, at, at Second Baptist when I did a whole series titled Called, if you remember that. And then, I think that was maybe two years ago, and then Houston's First Baptist hired me to come teach that same series uh, six weeks long at their church. Um, and so I was kind of saying to the Lord, well, I don't really want to teach on that same topic, but I just felt as if it was something we needed to talk about. Because more than anything, I seem to get asked this question over and over and over again. It's one of the top questions I get asked. I don't know my purpose. Or I think I know it, but then I get confused. Or things don't go very well, and I thought I knew what I was supposed to do, and now I don't. And now I don't know if I'm called. I don't even know what that really means. So I thought to myself, Lord, let, let's do it. And so tonight, I'm going to be taking bits and pieces of some old stuff and some brand new stuff. And I'm really excited about it. Some things, maybe you've heard me tell a story or two or, or a scripture or two similar or the same. But I've, I've added some new stuff to this, and I think it's important. I think it's important. And I don't know. Last week, I kept thinking about schematics. Did anybody think of that during the week? Yeah? Okay, so this week, I'm hoping to leave you with some kind of a nugget. I never know what it might be, but I pray that, that the Lord will deposit something in every single one of us, because you got, you got in your car and you drove over here. He is not going to leave your tank empty, okay? He is not. All right, so let's talk about this, um, this whole notion of calling. Well, I think it was maybe about 10 years ago, I walked into a sermon, and it was kind of this, this, this pastor, this huge, big, bellowing voice, you know, and he was talking about how we needed to be more involved, and it was all about our talents and our gifts and our abilities, and we need to give those fully over, and we need to, to just really just abandon everything and go, 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 you know? And I mean, I just started to slink in my chair. And you guys know me. Like, you know I'm a maniac for Jesus, right? I mean, 
I'm a maniac for Jesus. My family's always like, slow down, take things off your plate. I always say, I just can't keep asking God to give me a bigger plate. I'm not taking anything off, like make it bigger, you know? And, and, and so I knew it wasn't that I was slacking, but I will tell you, I slinked all the way to my car. And when I got into my car, I felt really awful. I felt like I had just been beat up for about an hour. And I started to pray about it. I said, Lord, was there something I'm supposed to hear from that? Is there something I'm missing? Is there something I should be doing more, more action that I should be called to? And you know what the Lord spoke to my spirit so beautifully? He literally said to me, Gary, we don't need more action in the body of Christ. We need more depth. We don't need more action. We need more depth. Because I think, like never before, we have Christians running around involved with every cause, with everything, you know, their hands on everything, and, and also feeling bad if not, you know, because all you have to do is look at social media. You're like, well, they're doing this, and they're doing that, and she's involved with trafficking, and she's involved with this and that, and that, you know, and certain things look really sexy, you know, like right now trafficking is really like, that's kind of the, the, the sexy ministry to be in. That's a horrible word, but that's what in nonprofit we call the, the sexy things to, to give to. And then there's like, we're just back at Africa, you know. We're just back with the kids in Africa, and, you know, that's no longer exciting for people to want to get involved in, you know. And, and so we kind of talk about these things in the nonprofit world, and, and I started to think to myself, Lord, what if it's not about any of that? What if it's not about what we do, but who we become? What about that? Can you bring up that one slide, sweetheart? I think I have. Yes. We confuse God's call with our human capacity to work. It then becomes what we can do for God rather than who we can be with God. And that's messy. That's messy. All right, so some of you, if you've heard me teach on this before, you've heard me say this phrase, and this is the phrase that the Lord rocked my world with. When I got this phrase in my mind several, several years ago, it's changed everything about how I look at ministry and look at life and look at loving the Lord. The Lord really would say this to us. His call on your life, on all of our lives, is know me, not show me. It's know me, not show me. Okay, now, for those of you that know James, you, you might start to spout that off like, well, you know, faith without works is dead, and you're right, it is. But I'm going to say this to you. Without a solid knowing of God, you will not have the stamina, the courage, the determination, and the grit for any kind of a showing. You won't. You won't. And sometimes we're putting all our energy in the showing and very little over here in the knowing. And this is why people burn out, friends. This is why we get confused and why we think, well, I thought I was called to this and I guess I'm not because the doors are all shutting or, or you know, we get our feelings hurt super easy or we give up really easily or, you know, that's why because we're spending all our time in the showing and God's saying, I want you over here in the knowing because when you're in the knowing, you've got the strength for the showing.
and were the people that were meant to be in the showing. And I speak this as a woman that has struggled with this mightily, mightily. And I'll tell you all about that tonight. All right, so Oswald Chambers, one of my, you guys know how much I love him, one of my very favorite writers, authors, speakers, teachers um, in the early 1900s, he says this about the call of God. The call of God is not the echo of my nature. My affinities and personal temperament are not considered. As long as I consider my personal temperament and think about what I'm fitted for, I shall never hear the call of God. To be brought into the zone of the call of God is to be profoundly altered. Okay, what is he saying? Because he's super deep and I love him so much. But he's basically saying, we've kind of turned the call of God into a personality test. You know, like, what am I inclined for? What am I most suited for? I've literally had people say to me, well, you know, Gary, um, I'm really just um, called to kids. Like, I'm really not called to the poor. I just, I'm, I'm just, uh, like, I like kids. Or like, I like kids, I don't like adults. Like, keep adults away from me. I just like kids. That's my only call. That's where I'm gonna spend my time. <laughs> you know, or like, I'm called to be creative. I'm not called to like, like handle administrative things, like keeping track of things and stuff. You know, or, or just, I mean, I cannot tell you, I, I know what I like. I like writing Bible studies. I like teaching people. I love people. I hate, I hate fundraising. I hate the nitty gritty of, of nonprofit work. I mean, but do I spend time in both areas? Yes. Does it mean I'm called in one way more than another way? No. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, because the call of God is know me, not show me. The call of God is what he's doing and who he's making you. It's not all the, all the fun things, you know, that you feel a passion for, you know? And, and now, I'm not saying that we're not inclined to certain things and that he won't use that and use who you are. Of course, he's made you that way. That's the beauty of loving the Lord. But the call of God is something really different. All right, so right away, I'm going to blow a couple of myths out of the water in terms of calling. All right, and the first myth, I think all this is on your overview. Um, the, is it? Yes, okay, good. The first myth is this. If you're called to something, God will open the doors so you can easily walk through. Ah, uh, no. Amen? Does anybody know that that is not true? Amen. We know that. Good. See, I like, I like teaching you guys. Lindsay, I know you're, you, you know, in high school, it still seems like maybe that's not true. Like, life is going to be super easy. But it's not. But that's okay. We love you. And we're supporting you. All right? Now, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy. Okay, I'm going to show you a couple quick scriptures on this that I love. Second Timothy was Paul's last 
It's thought to be some of his last writing, if not his last writing. And he was writing to his young mentor mostly about what it was going to be like to serve Jesus Christ, mostly. And Paul wrote most of this in prison, if not all of it. And it was very close to the time that he was going to be beheaded. All right, so that kind of puts it in perspective. But here in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 7, let's start there. For God has not given to us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Here it is. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and the grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, friends, I don't know what your particular version says. I love that the NASB says a holy calling. What does somebody else say? Just say it out. A holy life. Excellent. Any other rendering of that? Okay, a holy life. And I, I, love, I love the word calling. I'm just so attracted to it. Because it's like God calling you, inviting you to something, wooing you towards something. I love that. So I love that Paul took the time to tell young Timothy, you know what? This is a holy calling, and it's really not about your works. It's about God's purposes. That's what he's going to do through you and in you. It's not about the works you're going to do for God. It's about the purpose that he's going he's gonna to show through your life. Okay, so now flip with me, if you would, please, to 2 Timothy 4. <clears throat> so we're just going to go back a titch. And I love this, too. Look at verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7. It says this, But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Okay? So Paul's saying a couple of things here, and I, I probably, friends, honestly say this scripture about three or four at least times a day, along with a bunch of other ones. But this one hits me through the day at different time frames because I have to remember Paul is saying be alert, endure hardship. Somehow I think we think that serving the Lord you know is going to be just like all about us and man he's going to make our life so easy and so comfortable and so perfect. Well we all know that's not true but the more you mature the more you really realize that. You really realize that. And I love how he says, endure the hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And what work is that? An evangelist simply tells people, Jesus Christ loves you. He has died for your sins. He has a plan for your life. He adores you. Follow him. So he's saying, do that work. 
You know, it's, you don't have to run a ministry. Just like do that work. Do the work of an evangelist. I love how Paul also mentions a drink offering. He mentions this in Philippians 2. Um, I mean Philippians also, not Philippians 2. <laughs> I don't know what, where it is in Philippians, but it's somewhere. But he says, he says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. And back in his day, you know, there were different kinds of offering, grain offerings, burnt offerings. A drink offering was when they would take the wine, which would represent blood, or they would actually take animal blood and pour it over the altar in sacrifice. And Paul's saying, I am taking my life, my lifeblood, and I'm pouring it out over the altar as a sacrifice. And you know who he was saying it was for? You. For, uh, for others. He, that was the connotation in Philippians. I always use that scripture when I go to speak to a, a group of women. Typically, if I'm doing like multiple days at a conference or something, I will say, you are here to relax and, and enjoy the Lord. I am here to pour myself out as a drink offering. You tax me to the last cell of my body. You know, and so, so this drink offering is a beautiful image, and it's also an image of Jesus on the cross, the blood spilt, the final offering. All right, so that first myth, we just have to understand that when God calls you towards certain things in your life, which ultimately we know he calls you to himself, but when that translates into doors opening in certain ways or things you're attracted to and things you want to do, for him, understand that it's not always going to be easy. And it doesn't mean he didn't call you to it. Too often we run from it. Or we get our feelings hurt. Or we think that's too hard. Or those people were mean. And it didn't work. And they didn't like me. And now what? You know, and we quit before we've even gotten in it. All right. Right there is that first myth. It may not be easy. Endure hardship. Do the work of evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. All right? Number two. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you were made for this and this alone. I'm going to tell you guys this story, and, the, and this is the story that always pops in my head when I think of this around calling. When I was in fifth grade, I went to a, a small um, Catholic school. Anybody else go to Catholic school? I love you so much. Yes, so you, you under, you, okay, okay, you understand, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. So <clears throat> we had a playground that was tar, okay? We didn't have grass. <laughs> we had a parking lot. That was our playground. And we would always play kickball out on the playground. And so there were two sections of fifth grade, 5A and 5B. And I was in 5B, and I'm just going to come right out and say it, 5B was kind of the cool class. Not, I'm not saying because of me. I'm just saying it was just cool. Like the, the cool kids were all in that class. You know, I mean, and every single day we would play kickball against 5A and guess who would win every day? 5B, my class. Because we were better and we were more confident. So about midway through the school year, I got sick of being on 5B. Plus, I didn't like how cocky everybody was. They were actually kind of mean to 5A, and I didn't like it. So I told all my peers in 5B that I was going to willingly join 5A's team. And they thought I was out of my mind. Are you kidding me? You're going to lose. 
you know, and I said, I don't care. I just like these guys. I feel bad for them. I'm always a sucker for the underdog. And so I joined 5A, and friends, I am not a good kickball player. I'm a very mediocre athlete at best. I'm a great cheerleader. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I'm like the greatest cheerleader ever. And of course, that was always my love, right? In high school, growing cheerleading. Oh, my gosh. I loved it so much. So, so I would literally stand on the sideline where 5A and every kid that would get up, you know how you do kickball, you know? And I'd be like, you can do it. You're the best. You can do this. And guess what happened on that first day with 5A? They won. They won. And then we went on to win like six days in a row. 5B was so mad there. And, and they couldn't figure out the secret. It was just that 5A needed cheering. They needed encouraging. That's all they had talent too. You know, and so what happened is one of the nuns <laughs> pulled me aside when we lined up. And she had been watching this all week, you know. And, and she pulled me aside. She goes, Gary, come here. And she was real super, like, stern, you know, and she's like, I'm going to tell you something, and I want you to listen well. Your calling in life is to be an encourager. I've watched you on the playground. You are an encourager. Do you hear me? Yes, sister. No, that's what your call is. Yes, sister. Don't you ever forget your call. That's a call from God. Yes, sister. I mean it. Yes, sister. So I go back like terrified, like, oh my gosh, I'm called to be an encourager. And the rest of my life, like, I have bent over backwards to be an encourager. And, and I love that. And God loves encouraging. But sometimes you have to say things that aren't always encouraging, like the truth, right? Sometimes. Sometimes. And for a people pleaser like myself, that has felt like death. Plus, Sister Mary James said I had to be an encourager. That was the call of God on my life. You know, and, and I thought, well, that's the only thing I'm good at. That one thing. I'm an encourager. That's it. You know, and I've battled so many insecurities in my life. It's ridiculous. But Sister Mary James said I was a good encourager. You know, but I want to, I'm, I'm sharing this with you just to say, sometimes you feel like you're only in one lane. And that's it. But God has called you to a plethora of things. A plethora. And there are so many needy, hurting people everywhere. All they need is you. I mean it. They need a you. You know, and, and, and sometimes we have to tell the truth, but encouragement's always great too. Thank you, Sister Mary James. You know, I was scared of her. She, well, I don't know how your nuns were, but mine were scary. And they, I, I love them to pieces, but they were scary. All right, now let's look at this last one. And this one, oh my gosh. The last myth is simply this. You've probably heard it said to you at some point, you better use it or lose it. Like whatever gifting the Lord's given you, you better use it or he'll choose somebody else to come on in and take over for you what you should have done somebody else will do. Has anybody ever had that said to them? Someone said that to me when I was sharing about a book I wanted to write before I had my first book published. And they were like, you know, if you don't write that book, 
God's going to choose somebody else to write it. And I was in such a panic for like four years because it wasn't the right timing. And I kept making mistakes trying to make that happen because that person said, you better use it or lose it. You know, now let me show you a scripture that's remarkable. Turn to Romans, please. Romans, and we're going to look at chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 11. Just one little line. Romans chapter 11, verse 29, says this. <clears throat> For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. Whatever gifts the Lord has given you, whatever ways he's wooing you and inviting you and calling you deeper with him, it's irrevocable. No one can take that from you. No one's going to jump in in front of you. You can't lose it. You can't earn it. It's a gift. And it's irrevocable. So whenever I start feeling panicked, like, you know, I'm not doing enough, or I'm not doing it right, or somebody else is doing it better, and I don't know, I always come back to this verse. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. All right, so... Oh, I'm so excited about what we're going to do in the Word tonight, friends, because as I've studied callings and the way God seemed to call out certain people in the Bible, and I've studied it for years, ever since I wrote that teaching series, and then I also did a book proposal, um, which oddly I turned down. I, I, they wanted to publish this book titled Called, and last Christmas I turned it down. Um, and I think it's because there's more material that needs to be added to it that, that hasn't come to fruition yet. But uh, ever since I started to study this topic, I'm so interested in what it looks like when God starts to, to, to pull you out in a calling. What does that look like? And so tonight, we're going to look at three people. We're going to look at Isaiah. We're going to look at Moses. And we're going to look at Caleb. All right? So Isaiah, man, this just blows me away. Turn, please, if you would, to Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Use your table of contents if you need to. Don't get freaked out. Take your time. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I want to make a point right off the bat on Isaiah chapter 6. This is a, a chapter of scripture that gets taught a lot around when God calls you in your life. So I'm going to make a point right off the bat from verse 1. Let's only read the first verse. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. All right, now let me, let me teach you some stuff on this one verse. Isaiah, it's known, was a man of means. He came from a family of means. He was used to working within politicians and kings. It was kind of the way his family had raised him. He was used to being with prominent people. 
And Isaiah was a scribe to the king. And that means that Isaiah would write things for him. He would um, speak some prophetic things. He would sometimes read uh, from the law. He, this is kind of Isaiah's job. But he did it most of his life for King Uzziah. Now, if you want to just keep your finger here and flip back to 2 Chronicles, go with me to 2 Chronicles, because I want you to see what the environment was for most of um, Isaiah's life prior to Isaiah 6. Let me introduce you to this king. Chapter 26 in 2 Chronicles. All right? I'm going to read 3 through 5, then we're going to bump over to another chunk of verses. Chapter 26, 2 Chronicles 3 through 5. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Okay, 16, he starts into his kingship, and we don't know exactly the year Isaiah started serving him, but Isaiah served a period, a long period of time with this king. Now watch what happens in verse 16. Does your version start with the word but? Oh, gosh, whenever you see but. Be careful. A zinger's coming right after it. But when the king became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah the king, and they said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Friends, do you know that this king served the rest of his kingship covered in leprosy? Covered. Now, he had leprosy till the day he died, and other people had to do a lot of his jobs and duties because according to the laws of leprosy, he was actually um, banished to a separate home. But it was in this environment that Isaiah, prior to Isaiah 6, was serving the Lord. Okay, so right away in Isaiah 6, verse, verse, first verse, in the year that King Uzziah died, he sees a vision of the Lord. Let me tell you, friends, I have the feeling that there's some of you in here tonight that you are on the verge of some new 
new things, new territory, new types of calling from the Lord. And sometimes, <laughs> Stacy says, you don't say. Yeah. Sometimes it takes something dying to get there. It takes something dying because God's about to take you into a new season. But as long as you were in this other season, you couldn't get there. But all of a sudden, the, the, something, and I don't know what, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's a circumstance, sometimes it's a place, something dies and you're ready. You're ready and you start seeing things in a different way. The king died, all of a sudden, he now sees the presence of God Almighty, the robe, the throne. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's an accident that in Isaiah, they mentioned the king died. The king died. All right, let's go on. Verse 2. <clears throat> oh, this is so good. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings with two. They covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. I want to... I want to download some information to you on this scene. Now, typically, do you remember last week we talked about the enemy and how he's an imitator of God and why um, that, that structure of the enemy's army, the principalities and the, and the spiritual forces of wickedness, how it's an imitation of God. God has legions of angels. He's got an army of angels. And the two that we most typically hear about are archangels and the cherubim. Now, the cherubim is the, the angel depicted on the Ark of the Covenant. And cherubim angels are known for mercy and protection. If you've ever seen a picture of the Ark, their wings kind of covered what's called the mercy seat. And they're just, they're beautiful. It's stunning. Look at a picture of the Ark if you ever can. And you'll see the cherubim angels depicted on the ark. Now, seraphim, seraphim are totally different. And Kyle, I thought of you so much this week as I studied this scripture because seraphim are all about fire. They're all about fire. They are the angels, angels that are purifying. And, and I actually found uh, an artist's rendering, and I attached it to your... Um, overview. And again, it's just an artist's idea of what a seraphim may look like. It looks kind of weird, I know, uh, to try to picture what this might look like. But these angels, friends, were so majestic. And Isaiah described their wings, all of different purpose. And, and they're, they're known, their name means burning ones. Burning ones. They are the purifiers. They're the purifiers. So it's interesting that these are the kind of angels that Isaiah sees in this scene. The seraphim. And the temple is filling with smoke. Verse 5. Then I, meaning Isaiah, said, I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. 
And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth. He touched my lips. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Wow. So picture these burning, majestic angels of fire. And they take with tongs. It's interesting the word says that. With tongs, they pick up this coal. And coal is often used in scripture. Did you know it was a coal fire that Peter sat around? when he denied Jesus three times. In Romans, they talks about when you bless your enemy, it's like putting heaping burning coals on their head. Coal is something that is depicted throughout the word. And it's interesting that it's coal that the seraphim takes with the tongue and touches Isaiah's lips with. Now, in the past, when I've studied this scripture, I've always thought that was kind of a pretty scene. Like, oh. He's purifying his lips. But friends, do you know that this was insanely painful? Picture coal burning your lips. I mean, Isaiah was probably like, ah! I, this is not a pretty scene. You know, we picture these little halo scenes like, oh, Isaiah found his calling. You know, but this is like, awful it's awful and it's awful for two reasons one he is overwhelmed with his own sinfulness i am ruined because of my lips it's weird to me that he chose his lips to say i mean i think about i've been thinking about this a lot um, in the last few days like what would i say if i was in this scene you know would it be my eyes would it be my brain? Probably my brain, like my thoughts. You know, would it be my feet? They're just so quick to go the wrong way. You know, but he said his lips, and I've wondered and pondered about that because priests really had to hold to a very stringent way of eating. Perhaps he was a closet, non-kosher eater. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps... He had a foul mouth. I had a foul mouth before knowing Jesus. I know that's hard to believe, but oh my gosh. I had the mouth of a sailor before I came to know Jesus. Have you noticed how women have the worst mouths nowadays? It's just, they put, met, they put Bobby's baseball teams to shame. Oh, perhaps he had a closet foul mouth. Perhaps. His mouth spouted negativity, bitterness, doubt, unfaithfulness on a regular basis. I don't know. But something about his lips made him feel undone. And that's exactly where the seraphim went to purge. And the seraphim purged that part of his life. And I believe that Isaiah was probably screaming like, but when it was over, look at what happens. I mean, this is the most remarkable verse in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us, capital U.S.? Then I said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Friends, this is one of the few times that we see the Trinity before Jesus was even born. That uppercase, us, we see it in Genesis. We see it here. It's God referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one. He's saying, who are we going to send? Who are going to send? Who will go for us? Because the people were so messed up. And they needed someone so badly to bring the news of the living God. Who's going to go for us? And Isaiah, now notice, after being purged and burned, he says, here I am, send me. If anybody in this room is in a season of burning or purging, and you feel like God is just cleaning things out and you almost can't take it anymore, hang on. Hang on. Because he's about to send you. But he can't send you if you haven't been cleansed in the right way. Because you'll be a mess. You won't have anything to offer. You'll, you'll fizzle out in no time. And he won't have that because he loves you too much. He's preparing you. He's preparing you. Here I am. Send me. So, friends, on this snapshot, this picture, this window into a call, I want you to notice that there's almost a pattern to it. Listening, cleansing, sending. Isaiah was listening to the Lord. He allowed the Lord to cleanse him and, and purge him. He could have run. He could have. When he saw that seraphim coming at him with a tongue, he could have been like, Bleh. and you know what? God loves us no matter what. But who wants to run from God? I don't. I've tried that. It's much more fun and adventurous to let him do what he's going to do because he's going to do it pretty much anyway. So just let him, you know, just let him. All right. Now, let's move on to the second teaching on calling, and I love this. You know what? I think that I, Allie, I don't know if I put this on um, the slides. I think it's in the overview. Let's just lay a couple principles, though. Before we leave Isaiah, let me just say this. Calling principle number one, God will purge out anything that keeps us from his call. He will purge it out from his call. Sometimes we think we're called to certain things that perhaps we're not. But he will purge out anything that keeps us from his call. Okay. All right. Let's go on. Let's look at Moses. Oh, so good. All right. Now, to understand calling, we just cannot tell this story we cannot not tell the story of Moses. And I tell it kind of often, and I feared that. I thought, I don't want people who've heard me tell this to hear me tell it again. But I, I, I prayed about it, and the Lord's like, you cannot not tell this story. Because it's one of the best pictures of a calling. All right? So we're going to look in Exodus chapter 3. 
Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to start with Moses in verse 11. And before we read it, I just want to recap. I know you guys know Moses, and you probably know his history, but you know he was a murderer, right? I mean, yeah, Moses, holy Moses, was a murderer. You know, he killed an Egyptian. This is a case of trying to rush a call. He was feeling a lot of compassion for the brethren, the Hebrews, because he was one. And I don't think he fully understood what God was going to do with him. And he tried to rush it and take it into his own hands. And so when he saw an Egyptian guard treating a Hebrew slave poorly, he murdered him. And probably for about two seconds, that felt really good. But the next day, somebody recognized him. And he knew he was going to be in trouble. And so he ran away and hid. And he hid for 40 years. For 40 years. And I believe that after 40 years, it's sort of not hiding anymore, right? He was like in a witness protection program. <laughs> he was a shepherd. And he had met a new woman and had children in a new life out in the hills, the hill country. And I, to some degree, think he was happy. I think he was happy. But all of a sudden, the burning bush. The burning bush. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it's me who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'm going to say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you? Now, what if they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, that's what you'll say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent you. Holy monkeys. That, that's the weirdest scene. I mean, you've got a bush on fire. And I have to believe that at first, maybe Moses was like trying to put it out, you know? Like, the sheep might get hurt, you know? And, and suddenly, God speaks from it. And he tells him the craziest thing. Yeah, you're the one that I want to go let my people free from Egypt. Now remember, Moses grew up there. He grew up in Pharaoh's house like a son to Pharaoh. Like a son. Sometimes we forget that. I believe he really liked Pharaoh. I do. And God's saying, I want you to now come up against him and let my people go. And you know what? Moses says the same thing any of us would say. He says, who am I? And you can read that 
those three words with inflection in different words and it means something different. First off, he might have said it like, who am I? Who am I? Has anybody ever sort of wandered around wondering, wondering like sort of who are you? I used to say that a lot earlier in my life. Like, who am I? Who am I? And I asked the wrong person. I would always ask Bobby Meacham. And he's never struggled one single day with knowing who he is. He's always like, well, I'm a star baseball player. Like, he, that's not who he is, but that's who he thought he was. You know, me, I just wandered around like, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. Who am I? And you could also hear perhaps Moses' voice say, who am I? Who am I? Why would you choose me? I'm a shepherd and a murderer. Like, why me? So who am I or who am I? And I love that he says to God in, in such candor, but yeah, but like, who am I going to tell them sent me? And God just says this great line, you tell them I am who I am sent you. That's who. And you know what, friends? Only a teacher would do this. I, I was going to bring it on a board. I used to, I found this old board I had from probably a, a Bible study at Second Baptist that one year. But, but if you write out, I am who I am. Okay? The who, which is kind of like, us, like, who am I? Who am I? Because if you read it backwards, it says, who am I? Who am I? Is surrounded by I am and I am. It's no accident that God said it over. I am who I am has sent you. Who am I? I am is right in that same phrase of I am who I am. Who am I? If you turn it backwards, there it is in God's phrase. This was all about identity. This was about identity. Moses didn't know who he was. And it was about identity. Pull up this scripture, or this, this, this second calling principle, because I like how I, how I said this. Your identity enables your calling. Your calling is not your identity. Okay? So Moses is being called to something, and God is redefining who he is. God is redefining who he is in the midst of it. But you know what? Moses is flailing with this so badly. The rest of that chapter is him like, but, 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 but. And how many of you guys are raising young children? Is anybody raising kind of young children? Okay. So, you know, when your child starts to freak out, a really good strategy is what I call redirect. Like, they might be like, and you're like, want a cookie? You know, you just... <laughs> Give them something different to think about. All right? So some of you have seen me do this with my portable staff. This is a real shepherd staff, just so you know. But I want you to get this scene because it's such a beautiful scene of calling. There's no better, I don't think. So here's Moses at the burning bush. And if you think about the old movies like Ten Commandments, you know, you always picture him like, like this. But I don't think he was like that at all. I think he was like this. Like shaking, like the staff is like shaking. Because he's like freaking out because the bush is talking to him. 
telling him to go let millions of people free from a land that he grew up in. And he likes the Pharaoh. So here he is. You know, and, and so God has to do a redirect because Moses is freaking himself out. He's getting further and further and further and further into like a panic attack. And so God does a redirect. He says to Moses, what's that in your hand? <laughs> As if he doesn't know. I mean, he's God. He knows he can see it. But Moses is like a staff, a staff. Now, for those of you that love like Psalm 23, like I do, oh my gosh, or love the image of Jesus as a shepherd, um, or David as a shepherd, you know, if you've done any studying on a staff, a staff and a shepherd were inseparable. You would never see a shepherd without his staff. As a matter of fact, they laid on him at night. It was almost like a piece of furniture, like a pillow. It was also a weapon. They could keep like prey and enemies out from their sheep, if need be. It was a walking stick. It helped them keep their balance. They could use it as a hook and bring in a little lammy that was going astray. I mean, there were all kinds of uses with this thing. And it was really almost more like a security blanket, I think. You know, and so God says to Moses, what's that in your hand? And he says, a staff. And you know what God says to him? Let's read it. Chapter 4. Verse 1. Moses answered and said, What if they won't believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord hasn't appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then God said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. <laughs> but the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, friends, I want you to see this scene. So I'm going to get a little cray-cray here right now, okay? So... You know, God's redirecting because Moses is flipping out. I can't do it. Oh, my gosh. And God says, what's that in your hand? A staff. God says, throw it on the ground. So Moses just, like, obeys, and he goes, bam. Sorry, Chloe. <laughs> now, you know, if you want to believe that Moses was a man's man, you could think that he was macho and just stood there like, yeah, mm -hmm. you're a serpent now. I'm not afraid. But when that staff that he loved became a fiery serpent, Moses did the most unmanly thing we can imagine. He ran! Ah! Just screaming, oh, God! You know? And God said, pick it up by its tail. By its tail. And any of you that like snakes, I hate snakes. But if you like snakes, you probably know that you would never, ever, ever pick up a snake by its tail. Because if you do, it can turn its head around and bite you. You always pick up snakes by their head. But God said, uh-uh, pick it up by its tail. Now, I don't think it was an easy pickup either. I think... Wait a minute. 
Okay, okay. That was silly, I know. All right, I think it was more like, you know, this hissing, horrible thing. And do you know, some scholars believe it may have been a cobra? Why? Because Pharaoh's palace had pits of live cobras. And his magicians would always use them. And you know, if you ever think about pharaohs, they always had the cobras on their arms, the gold cobras on their necks. Their jewelry was all those heads of cobras. Wouldn't it make sense that this was a cobra? And I believe it wasn't an easy pickup because I believe Moses was like, ah, ah, ah. I mean, I cannot even imagine how that felt. He was hiding a minute ago. Got to go get it by its tail. I'd be like, oh, for the love. Can't you? So, you know, somehow he gets it, and he gets the staff, the tail of the serpent, and bam, it becomes his staff again. His comfort. His comfort. And friends, we're not going to study it. I've done a whole study before on the ways God used that very staff to change history. That very staff God used over and over and over again. But this encounter with God at the burning bush and with his staff, this was about identity. And this was God saying to Moses, look, you may be a little confused by your life. Your mama was Hebrew. You grew up in the Pharaoh's palace. A little bit of an outsider, not sure how you fit in. Then you have this compassion for the Hebrews. You strike out before you're ready. Then you go into hiding as a shepherd. And I believe he thought that was the end of his life. It's going to be a shepherd, raise a family, live in the hills. And all of a sudden, God shows up. And he's an older man by now. And God has a whole new beginning for him. But friends, I'm going to say something to you very important. And so listen to this. You have got to be willing to throw down what you're afraid of. What are you afraid of tonight? What scares you? What perhaps keeps you up at night? What nags in your brain? What do you feel like perhaps you failed at? What are you scared will never happen? What is it? Because I believe tonight God is saying to you, throw it down. Because there's going to be a moment when he's going to want you to grab that very thing by its tail. And it will be completely different because you won't be afraid of it anymore. You won't be afraid of it anymore. And God will use it for power the rest of your life. Some of the weakest parts of my life, some of the horrible, most horrendous parts of my life are now the strength of my life. But it wasn't easy. I know. It wasn't easy. I'm not saying this in an easy, slight way. But if you have the courage, he'll change it. He'll change it. Now, let me hit on one last point on Moses, and this is important. Um, because as you are living out a call, there may be people who come alongside you for seasons and perhaps they're amazing and wonderful and you love it, but there may come a time when they disappoint you. Or when they walk away from you. Or even worse, 
when they speak poorly of you or there's some kind of a severance in a relationship. There may be something that discourages you so bad that you feel like giving up. All right, so I'm going to show you what happened to Moses because if you know the story, Moses had his brother, Aaron. I mean, you know, when Moses was afraid and, and said to God, I can't speak well, I'm a stutterer, God gave him Aaron, you know that. Aaron was the one that was with him by his side through all the plagues and all the, the hard, just fighting for the freedom. Moses was with them when they walked through the Red Sea. Excuse me, Aaron. Aaron was up on the hill when Joshua was fighting and they were holding up the staff, that staff, so they would win the battle. I mean, it was Aaron, 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 Aaron. Now, all of a sudden, there's a time frame when God calls Moses to the mountain because he's spending time with them. He's going to give them the, the commandments. You know, Moses was 40 days in the mountains. All right? 40 days on top of the mountain. Now, I want you to look, if you would, please, at Exodus. Let's go chapter 32. Exodus 32. And I want you to hear the tone of what's happening. Verse thir or chapter 32, verses 1. Let's go 1. Actually, let's go 1 through 5. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god, little G-O-D, who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, tear off your gold rings, which are in your ears, and the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hands, and he fashioned it with a tool and he made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. What? Does some of your versions say Jehovah? The rendering of that word is Jehovah. Tomorrow will be a feast to Jehovah. Has he lost his mind? I mean, he just collected gold and, 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 and put it into the fire and purposely made a false idol. Very intentional. You know, and what kills me is the tone of the people. We don't know where that dude is who brought us out of Egypt. Like, we don't know. It's been 40 days. One month. One month. And they're ready to forget it all. Make us a little G-O-D. Make us something. That's the craving of false worship. That's the craving of it. That's the craving. That's the intensity of it. And I don't know what came over Aaron. Listen to what he said. Oh, my gosh. If you, if you turn um, to, let's look at... 
what happened when Moses and Joshua came down the mountain. So just go to, um, we're in 32, verse 19. When they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing. And in terrible anger, he threw the tablets to the ground, and they lay broken at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf and melted it in the fire, and when the metal cooled, he ground it into powder and spread it on the water and made the people drink it. Then he turned to Aaron. What in the world did the people do to you? He demanded to make you bring such terrible sin upon them. Don't get so upset, Aaron replied. You know these people and what a wicked bunch they are. They said to me, make us a God to lead us, for something has happened to this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt. Well, I told them, bring me your gold earrings. So they brought them to me, and I threw them into the fire, and, well, the calf came out. What? What? That's the life application rendering, and I love NSAB says, I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. He has lost his mind. He has lost his mind. And as my good friend Rhonda Williams would say, Moses wanted to go neighborhood on him. Neighborhood. Right? But friends, Moses, Moses had learned something in the course of his call. Moses had just spent 40 days on a mountain with God Almighty. He needed it, didn't he? He needed it. Because what he came down to must have broke his heart. Have you ever walked alongside people and suddenly they're not walking with the Lord anymore and you have poured everything into them? Something popped in my head. I'm going to share it real quick. I, <clears throat> one of my good friends is a homeless man. And something has changed in our relationship in the last two days. I haven't even told Allie this. Something has changed. I was going to take him to a hotel uh, the other night. I do that pretty often when it gets cold. And he didn't want to go because he hadn't earned enough money for his beer and his, and his cigarettes. And he knows I won't go buy him that. I love him to pieces. But I'm not just going to, like, go buy him what has destroyed his life because he's, a, you know, super alcoholic. And so... You know, so I said, okay, buddy, well, you want to go tomorrow? You know, because usually he'll just earn more money, and then I take him when it's a better time or when he has his supplies, as he calls it. Well, the next day I went, and you know what? People aren't giving very much right now, you know, and for whatever reason, it's after the holidays, whatever. And so he said to me, I'm not going to go, but could you just give me 20 bucks? Well, he's never, ever ever talk to me like that because we're we are friends like this man has prayed heaven down for me before and me him we've been friends for years and I said no mm -mm. I said I'll take you to the hotel but I'm not gonna give you 20 bucks because to me that's just feeding an addiction and he said something and it was like listening to the enemy speak right at me he goes you know I heard that you have a PI ticket on your life, and I guess that's public intoxication. I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I go, what? 
What is it? No, P, no public intoxication. PI, a PI ticket on my life. I don't know. He had heard from somebody. Now, that's the craziest thing in the world. I almost never drank in my entire life. I had two alcoholic parents. My father was a quadriplegic because of alcohol. Like, I never, I barely drank a beer in college, and I hated the way it made me feel because I couldn't talk very good after I drank it. And you guys know me, I'm social enough. Like, I don't need to loosen up. That puts me over the edge. I'm already loose, you know. And so I just looked at him, and I could just see, like, the enemy changing our relationship. I said, Kenny. Nobody said that. I said, I don't drink, number one. Number two, that's just not true. And he goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I wish I wouldn't have said it. Somebody told me that. I go, well, that's not true. You know, and so he was a little upset that I didn't buy him his stuff and take him to the hotel that night. I stopped by this morning with his coffee. And, you know, he was a little better. But I can tell something is changing in our relationship. And all day yesterday, when it was so cold, I kept praying to the Lord, should I go get him? And the Lord said, nope. 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 Sometimes people have to sit in their own messes. And you've tried to love them, and they've walked alongside you, perhaps, and maybe had the same vision and the same dream, and even maybe called towards the same things. But there may be times in your life where you got to let them go. you got to let them go. Right? Because they're not on the path with the Lord Almighty that you are. And if you keep them as baggage, they're going to hold you back. They're going to hold you back. Now, what did Moses do in this moment? If it were me, I would have been so, I would have been like, Aaron, go back to Egypt. Like, ugh. How could you do this to all these people? We were making headway with them. Look at where we are now. But let me show you what Moses did. Oh, good thing he had 40 days with the Lord on the mountain. <laughs> Chapter 33. I want you to hear this exchange between God Almighty and Moses. Verse 14. And the Lord replied, I myself will go with you and give you success. For Moses had said, if you aren't going with us, don't let us move a step from this place. If you don't go with us, who will ever know that I and my people have found favor with you and that we are different from any other people upon the face of the earth? And the Lord had replied to Moses, yes, I will do what you have asked, for you have certainly found favor with me, and you are my friend. Then Moses asked to see God's glory. The Lord replied, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will announce to you the meaning of my name, Jehovah the Lord. I show kindness and mercy to anyone I want to, but you may not see the glory of my face. For men may not see me and live. However, stand here on this rock beside me. And when my glory goes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but not my face. Friends, 
This is so important when it comes to calling. And the reason I'm saying this is there are people and circumstances that will let you down and disappoint you. They may flat out hurt you. They may flat out harm you. They might. They might. But I want you to hear what Moses said. The overall cry of his life was simply this. Please, God, show me your glory. Please just show me your glory. Show me your glory. I don't care what backs you up against a wall or how the enemy tries to come at you with insecurities or horrible feelings or hideous lies. If you can simply say, show me your glory, God, show me your glory. I promise you, he will. He will, because I think God was so in love with Moses' heart. He was so torn down by the people and by his brother, by the behavior around him. He was doing nothing but trying to serve God and look at what was happening. And when it was all stripped away, he said, if you don't go with us, we got nothing. And just show me your glory. You know what God did in response? You are my friend. You are my friend. You know, in John 15, Jesus calls you his friend. You are my friends. If you do what I command, and what does he command? Love one another. Love one another. You want to know your calling? Love one another. Right? I love that about Moses. Uh, what was the fourth principle there, babe? Oh, this, you already, or no, I'm sorry. You, you, you had it. Let's go back. You had it. Disappointed, disappointment and discouragement can lead to a greater revelation of God's glory. It can. Do you know that if Aaron hadn't let him down and the people hadn't have sinned grossly and he hadn't had to see that scene, he never would have been in the cleft of the rock and felt God's hand on him. He got to see God. And you know what? When you think about the transfiguration, when Jesus was up on the mountain and he transfigured, who was there? Moses and Elijah and Jesus. I mean, Moses was privy to it all. The disappointment and the discouragement is no match for the greater revelation God will show you in his glory. You stay in it. You stay in it. And the last thing we're going to look at Personally, I'm so in love with this man, Caleb, I can hardly stand it. We're going to only look at a teeny little titch of his life. But I want you to turn, please, to Numbers. We're going to be looking at, oh, I'm sorry, Joshua. Let's go to Joshua, not Numbers. Joshua 14. Joshua 14. Mm. Love this so much. Okay, so let me set this last little chunk up for you. Um, so Caleb, if you remember, was one of the 12 spies sent out by Moses to see what the promised land was like. And if you remember, only Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. Ten of them came back like, oh my gosh, there's no way. And two... Caleb and Joshua came back saying, of course we should do this. Of course we should. 
Now friends, something that has struck me this week about Caleb is Caleb didn't have the glory calling. Joshua did. Joshua got a lot of glory. Joshua got to hang out with Moses. Joshua got to, to climb the mountain with Moses when he got the commandments. Joshua was the, the big, bad commander of the army. Joshua got to lead the people into the promised land. Where was Caleb? Somewhere in the crowd. Somewhere in the crowd. I cannot tell you how many times the Lord has said to me, Gary, be happy whether you're on the A, B, A team, the B team, or the C team. Because when you do what I do, there's always the A team. You know? And, 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 and I was really seduced into that when I got a really, really big book deal. But as some of you know, it comes with pressures and it comes with expectation. And I could never be what they wanted me to be and what they, the person they always told me they wanted me to be. They said it over and over and over again. And I failed them because I couldn't get her numbers because she'd been doing this for 20 years and I just entered into it in my late 40s. And so then I felt like a failure. And I felt like if I wasn't speaking to thousands, I was failing. But you know what? God changed the world with 12 people. What happened in the upper room? That was a group smaller than this. I don't think God cares one lick about numbers. I really don't. I mean, it's always great to have people come to things. Who wants to throw a party nobody goes to? That's the worst. You know, I've done that. I've taught Bible studies where one person showed up, you know, but there was a reason for that. But I'm just saying, some of us, like the Bible says, are called for honorable use and some common use. And are you okay with that? I'm looking at my adorable friend, Courtney, who wrote a great book, an amazing book. She was obedient to the Lord to write a great book. It's amazing. And maybe it'll be a bestseller, and maybe it won't. But no matter what, she was obedient to do what the Lord said. And you know what? When you're obedient, God fulfills the purpose of what he called you to. We shouldn't worry about the outcomes. And I'm preaching to myself. You know? So Caleb is a man who probably got to follow them into the promised land in the midst of the crowd while Joshua's leading it all. But watch this. Watch what happens with Caleb when Joshua was divvying up the territory after they conquered the promised land. I want you to look at chapter 14, verse 7. This is Caleb speaking to Joshua. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barah to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now, behold, the Lord has let me live. Just as he spoke, 
these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, listen, I am 85 years old today. Here it is. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you have heard on that day that Anakim, that they were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Now, what just happened? Caleb is now 85 years old. For any of us in the room that are, say, 45 up, I'm going to tell you one of my biggest fears is getting old because I love life so much and I want to do so much for the Lord that the thought of becoming irrelevant scares me more than anything. But this man encourages me. He's 85 years old. And you know what? He's standing before Joshua and he goes, you know what? It was me and you who came back with the good news. And the Lord said that I will have an inheritance. So right now, Joshua, give me the hill country. Listen, friends, Caleb could have asked for the valley. He could have asked for the fertile land that was really easy to take care of. He's old and he deserved it. But instead, what does he ask for? The hill country that still has remnants of an enemy. Why? He wants to fight. He wants to fight for the Lord. He's got a purpose. He's got a calling. It doesn't matter how old he is. Give me the hill country. I don't want to lay down and die. Do you know to God, there is no retirement. There is none. I mean, I don't care if I end up in a nursing home. I'm going to be starting up a Bible study in that place. Amen? I'm going to be like, you better watch out. There's some anointing in this place. Come on. Right? Listen. Caleb got no glory other than a few mentions in the Bible. But here he is, 85, standing before Joshua and says, give me the hard territory because I'm ready to fight for the Lord. I'm ready to fight for the Lord. And that is our last principle. Your calling spans over a lifetime until you take your last breath. Until you take your last breath. Let me pray for us tonight. And I'm going to ask our, our prayer team to come on up as I'm praying. And our guitar player to come on up and just play a little for us, please. Mm, Father, I just thank you, Lord, that you are so at work fulfilling purpose. Sometimes our flesh, Lord, wants easy. Sometimes our flesh would like to just go home and watch TV and, 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 and not work so hard, not think so much, not feel so much. But God, there is nothing like you. There is nothing like serving you. There is nothing 
like a life fully committed and called. There's nothing like you calling us out and purging us and equipping us the gifts and the calling that you give us are irrevocable, Lord God. It's a holy calling. Father, I believe that there are people in this room tonight that perhaps are weary. And right now, I just want to speak over their weariness. Lord, would you breathe new life into them? Breathe life into their dreams. Bring life. Breathe it into their needs. Breathe it into their commitment, Lord. Breathe it into their relationships. Father, I believe there's some tonight that just want to obey you, whatever that means. Some people are trying to get out of debt, Lord. Some people are confused They're between jobs. Please, God, show them their calling. Show them yourself show them your glory Lord I believe there's some in this room that are disappointed people have hurt them perhaps people they vested a lot in Lord God would you heal those wounds as only you can and would you take them to new people new places new hope just like Isaiah had to experience the death of a season. Lord God, would you take us into a new season and fill it with you. So Father, as we leave this place tonight, I pray that those that need specific prayer will come forth. But that as every one of us shut our eyes tonight, we will be assured of the fact that we will see your glory and assured of the fact that you are our friend. We don't have to work to earn that friendship. We already have it. We don't have to work to earn our identity. We already have it. So Lord God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that these sweet friends of mine have put themselves in a posture to hear from you. Would you do what you do when we posture ourselves like that? Would you speak to us, change us, revive us? Take us to new places and new heights, Lord God, as only you can. And until we see each other next week, Lord God, we pray this in your mighty, matchless name, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Gary Meacham. If you'd like to learn more about Gary's various ministries, her books, or want to have her at your next event, make sure you visit her website at GaryMeacham.com. Have a blessed day.